0: It's John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew that what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, if, you have, um, if you are a child between 5 to 10 years old, we have a children's church for you. There's a sign at the back. Please um, go there. And thank you.
1: Thank you, Neha. Huh? Good morning. My name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We continue in our study of John. Last week we looked at how Jesus is a good guy to have at a party. That when the wine runs out, Jesus will in fact refill the celebration with who He is. He's bringing in a new kingdom, a new celebration. That's what it is, that He's the celebrating King. And as we move into this text, John has put them together side by side so we can see that He's the celebrating King and He's the conquering King or He's the confronting King. Meaning, people expect the sinners to not be what Jesus is about, and he celebrates. And people expect the religious people to be on his good list, and that's who he confronts. It's important that John has put these together. When I was a little kid, I was afraid that no one had taken into account that Jesus sinned in this story. It used to stress me out. Did you ever feel that way? Like, that kind of looks like sin to me. Now I love this passage. It gives us a picture of what Jesus hates. And it's really important, if you're going to follow Jesus, to know what he loves and to know what he hates. Remember that he has just been called the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, and he goes into the temple during Passover and he sees a market right with extortion. He's the free Passover lamb, and here he finds them extorting poor people during Passover. With that in mind, let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I confess to you that the Jesus we find in scriptures is not always the Jesus that we expect to find or even the Jesus that we want to find. But rather than craft him into something that we would like him to be, we ask that you would craft us into his followers. That we would be able to get a sense of what he loves and what he hates and that we would begin to love those things and hate those things as well. Why would you move in our church? So many of us for so long have longed for a place to be transformed, a place to feel safe, a place to believe again that God cares for our needs. Please send your Spirit among us. Grant that Holy Spirit would make us alive, that there's those that don't know you that would know you, that those that have gone cold would become hot in love with Jesus. Father, would you move among your people? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Y'all know or will know that I love movies, and so often I'm going to use movie quotes and movie scenes that may mean something to you. It doesn't always necessarily mean that I'm saying that you leave from this place and go straight to, I was almost going to say Blockbuster. (laughs) You guys can be like, "Uh, what's Blockbuster? You go straight to Netflix to watch these things. You have to pray through and ask others your discernment about particular movies. But I use these so that you can connect and resonate with them. One movie from a long time ago is called Glory. It's retelling aspects of the Civil War. In particular, it's telling this story of a colonel who is charged with leading this African-American group of troops against the South. It's played by Matthew Broderick, and his name is Colonel Robert Shaw. And at one point, he ends up having to punish one of his troops because he thinks his troops are leaving, that they're abandoning their duty, that they're running off, that they're deserters. And he comes to find out that he's disciplining this soldier because the soldier was running off in the middle of the night to go find shoes so that he could come back and fight. Shoes. He wanted to be a soldier. And he wanted to fight for the North But his feet were getting so cut up, he went to go find shoes. When Robert Shaw hears about this, he finds out that there's a quartermaster who won't give the black troops shoes because he thinks it's funny. There's this scene where Matthew Broderick goes to confront him. He sort of kicks open the door of the quartermaster. He says, I want 600 pairs of shoes and 1,200 pairs of socks and anything else you've been holding out on us, you little piece of rat filth. He says, we don't have that kind of stuff. And Broderick says, oh, not for the black soldiers you don't. The quartermaster says, not for anybody. And he said, I'll see. I'll just look around, see if you haven't misplaced them. And Broderick starts knocking stuff around in the store. The quartermaster says, hey, you can't do that. Robert Shaw, Matthew Broderick says, can't I? I'm a colonel, you nasty little cuss. He actually says cuss there in my head. You think you can keep 700 Union soldiers without proper shoes because you think it's funny? Where would that power come from? In other words, the quartermaster is given shoes and socks and supplies so that not he could hold on to them and hoard them for himself, but so that he can give them for the blessing of others, particularly these African-American troops who don't have what they need. He was supposed to take the blessings and distribute them widely to others, and instead he's taking the blessings for himself. That is exactly what is going on here with Jesus in the temple. Jesus didn't say to those who were stewarding the temple, I'm going to bless you so you can keep all the money and the knowledge and all the blessings to yourself. The whole reason the temple existed was so that they would be blessed to go and be a blessing to the ends of the earth. They could bless the world. You see what's happened? is that the temple and those in charge of it have started taking the blessings and hoarding them for themselves instead of distributing it all over the world. And honestly, friends, the church is as guilty as anyone is doing that. But taking up the blessings of being a part of God's people, how sweet it is to be in communion with Him and to to love one another and to know God and to experience God together as a community. Instead, we end up sort of making others feel like outsiders, And as if the blessings of knowing God are here just for us, we don't want to fall into the same thing that the Pharisees have fallen into. We all struggle with hoarding God's blessings to ourselves, but because of who Jesus is, we must spread them and share them widely through the world. So first of all for you, what does Jesus hate? What does Jesus hate? He hates empty religion. Empty religion. It says in verse 13 and 14, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Now I know if we focus in on this one day, It can seem like he's overreacting, but I want you to really slow down and think about this. The God-man who the tabernacle was pointing to, who the temple was pointing to, the fact that there could be access to God for free, the fact that Jesus would one day come and be the thing that you get access to God through, and it's going to be for free. And it's shown by the tabernacle, it's shown by the temple, and now ultimately it's shown by this guy. The Passover feast is ultimately pointing to the one lamb who will give us all access. And Jesus walks in, and instead of this God-honoring, worshipful place, he finds a market. And he finds a market taking advantage of the poor. So the first thing he hates about empty religion is the extortion of the poor. The money changers here. That's why it singles them out. It says, and the money changers were sitting there. You couldn't use Roman coins in the offerings for the temple. It was sort of like defiling it. And so these people were sitting there. These people had come from far off, and they're supposed to come and change the money so that you'll have Jewish coins to put into the temple tax. And we know from other places he calls them robbers. This is what one of the commentators says what they're doing essentially. If a man came in with a 2 shekel piece, he would have had to pay an entire day's wage just to change his money. you see this? Poor people saving up all year long so that they can come and connect with God during Passover in the temple. And when they arrive there, they're greeted with people who the exchange rate is so bad it costs them a day's wage to give hardly anything else. Can you imagine the disappointment in the poor people? They've come all this way and they can't even afford. They can't even afford to pay the temple tax. You see, Jesus cares about poor people a lot. And it makes him angry when they're being extorted and attempt to su- supposedly connect with God. In fact, y'all know later in the New Testament, Saul becomes Paul, and the real disciples, apostles at that time, they want to check to make sure that Paul is the real thing, that he's a real disciple. And there's this awesome scene that happens where it says James and Peter and John and those esteemed as pillars. Paul saying, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They they welcomed us as real apostles and they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. See, Paul has the whole gospel. Listen to this. All they ask is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I have been eager to do all along. You see, Jesus cares about poor people. The super disciples or apostles as people thought of them. And the main thing that they want to do to make sure that Paul's in is two things. That he gets the gospel and that he does not forget poor people. That is a challenge to us. It's a challenge to those here at the temple. Jesus hates empty religion because empty religion doesn't care about poor people. That's why in James it will say true, and, true religion is this. Faultless religion is this to look after the orphan and the widow. Jesus looks after people that other people forget about. The temple had been taking advantage of poor people. We don't want to be guilty of the same thing, as individuals or as the church. There's a story of a nonprofit CEO in Minneapolis who was booked several years ago and is actually now in jail. Community Action of Minneapolis. It's this nonprofit, and it's a really cool nonprofit. They were supposed to be taking resources from others and provide energy and heating assistance to those who have low income residents. So they're taking money, they're raising money, and they're giving it to people in Minneapolis, by the way, to help them with their heating bills. And this person had run the organization for more than two decades. He had bought cars with the funds that were given to him. He had gone on vacation with funds that were given to him. He was caught with 16 different counts of fraud. Finally, the U.S. attorney that booked him said this: "Improving people's lives was the mission of community action of Minneapolis. Instead, this guy stole from those in need to line his own pockets." The evidence of fraud was overwhelming. Something meant to bless others was being hoarded by one person. And that's what's going on here is that the temple is meant to bless others, and instead it's being hoarded by a group of people who are keeping others out. The church can be like that too. One, we can focus so much internally on us and our needs that we ignore those who the church was meant for to bless those on the outside. Or as individuals, we can say we need to take care of our needs first, our fun first, our cars first, our vacations first. And if we get around to giving, we'll do that. If there's some left over at the end, we'll do that. And what he's saying is that you do not take advantage of the Lord's resources when it needs to be shared broadly and widely. Jesus hates empty religion, that it extorts the poor. He also hates that it obstructs the Gentiles extorts the poor and obstructs the Gentiles. You see, we know from other texts that all of this is going on in the temple court of the Gentiles. You may not know this, but there were several different courts. There's the Holy of Holies. There's only one priest can go one time a year. Then there's the court for the men at this time. And then there's the court for the men and the women. And then the last court out is the temple court for the Gentiles, the outsiders, those that might be interested in God might want to come see what Yahweh was like. And if they could, they were actually welcome in this area to come and learn and hear what God was like. And instead, Jesus walks into the place where the outsiders were supposed to be welcome, and it's like a farm. There's no room. It's like a market. In 1 Kings 8, when Solomon built the temple, it says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, listen to this, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The Shekinah glory cloud fills the temple. It's so full, in fact, that the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. Therefore, the glory of the Lord fills His temple. And Solomon says, "The Lord said that He would dwell in a dark cloud, and I have indeed built a magnificent temple for You, a place for You to dwell." You see, the temple is supposed to be so full of God's glory, so full of God's presence, so full of the authentic and robust encounter with God that there's almost no room for the priest to do their job. And instead, what the temple courts are full of are transactions with animals. And Jesus meant for this court to be filled with outsiders. Listen to this. It says this in Isaiah 56. That's how we know he's mad about this. It says, I will give him an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without just desecrating it, And hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. That's what he's quoting. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The point is, is that this temple, in connecting with God, was supposed to bring in the far off and say, You've been hurt by other gods. You've been hurt by life. You've been hurt by suffering. Come and see Yahweh. Maybe He's different than you think He is. Come in, experience our God and that the temple would therefore bless the nations, not hoard it for themselves. Moody says this, Jesus reserves His sharpest critiques for Pharisees, not prostitutes, for temple religion gone wrong rather than for people who get drunk at the local pub. You see, It's the Pharisees. It's the people who have it all together who are making the outsiders feel like they're not welcome when Jesus has said, I've made a people, I've made a temple for the sake of the outsiders so that the whole world would be full of His glory. And instead, this people group is hogging it to themselves. Christians now are supposed to bless the world, not hog the blessings for ourselves. Tim Keller said it this way, When the Christian center becomes proud and complacent, God finds a way to shake us up and move us out, recovering the fact that he wants us to preach to all nations. In 2017, on the the PCA website, there was .67 adult baptisms per church in the denomination. Not per week. Per church. That means somebody encountering grace and it transforming their lives and then giving their life to Christ and letting him be their Lord and their Savior that did 0.67 per church in 2017. That should make us sad. That should challenge our new church that we want to be about taking the gospel and blessing the nations, those who are far off geographically and spiritually. That we don't exist for ourselves, but for others and for so the glory of God. Jesus is angry because of the extortion of the money of the poor. He's angry because of the obstruction of of the Gentiles, and he's angry. Lastly, here because of the distraction from the glory, the distractions of worship. We know from the rabbinical writings that people were calling this court of the of the Gentiles the bazaars of the priest. meaning it was like going to the circus. It was like going to see. A market that was supposed to blow your mind—it was so they made so much money off the animals and the money changers. And the disciples start to remember something that's been said. They remember this from Psalm sixty-nine: it's "Zeal for my house will consume me." And I want you to see this. Remember, the temple was made for the people. The tabernacle was made for the people. All the other gods that the people would live by thousands of years ago would be the God who was far away on the mountaintop, the God who was far off, and if you did just what was right, he would bless your crops, and he would bless your children, he would bless your wealth. But all of those gods, they're kind of moody and they're far off. And so that God wanted his people to know what he was like. He said, I'm moving into the neighborhood. I don't want to be the God that is far off. I'm going to come and live alongside of you. In fact, the entire Bible can be, honestly, if you wanted to reframe it, the entire Bible could be a study of the nearness of God. Adam and Eve are what? Walking with God in the cool of the day. Then sin enters in and breaks them apart. And they get kicked out. And so they carry around the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence among His people, and then they put it into a tabernacle, and then they put it into a temple, and now God's presence among His people has arrived in healing. And instead of worshiping the real God in authentic and powerful worship, He's just this destruction. Friends, we have the presence of God with us, not in a tabernacle or in a temple, but in ourselves, in the church, and by the Holy Spirit. We walk around with the presence of God. And yet we too are so distracted by all the noise around us. What are the things that distract you in worship? And I don't just mean here on Sunday mornings. Really, all of your life is worship living sacrifices to God, all of your life is worship, what is distracting you? What is the bazaars of your life that is getting in your way from connecting with God? Well, for some of us, it's what are the things that keep us from coming to worship. There's a study out that says for a younger generation, I believe that I'm meaningfully involved in the life of a church if I attend monthly. You guys know me enough to know that I don't think that how many you should keep track of your Sundays. But that's how little it bothers us. That coming to church is something we do. That when we can do it, we'll do it. And if not, that's okay. We'll catch up. We'll catch up next week. The Spirit of God is in us and with us, and it matters so much that we come. What is the things that distract you from worship together or in your own life? The zeal for God can see you. Jesus hates these things the extortion and the obstruction. He hates these things and the distraction. He hates them because of two reasons it blocks those who need the help from the temple, and it's it selfish. The temple was to bless the nations. And Mark makes it clear that this is supposed to be a prayer for all the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations. What does that mean for us? It's famously said, the church is the only institution in the world that exists for the benefits of its non-members. The church is the only organization in the world that benefit, exists for the benefit of its non-members. I say to you during communion, if you don't know yet Jesus yet i I am so thrilled that you're here. in fact, we planted this church for you. We are going to be an outward facing church. We are going to look to those to bless them, not because it helps us but because we want to bless others. So are we helping people get in the door, not keeping them far off? Are we blessing those who are far off? Some of the ways that we are a distraction to those who would need to get in is that we call people to obey before they've been converted. We rage and rail against the culture and those that don't know God, and we're saying, you have to obey, and then you'll get converted, and then you can be a mother. And just like the temple, we have taken things and misused them so that those who are far off would stay full. How can we expect someone to live right before they have the Holy Spirit? Or maybe it's that we communicate to others that causing that religious practices are that's the way you know God instead of Jesus. Well, for some of us, it's causing people to think shame is the path to follow to God. If you will just beat yourself up, that's the only thing that stands in the way of you and Jesus.
0: You see. Whether we
1: mean to or not, we communicating to those that are far off that you should stay far away. What is Jesus saying in the closing moments of this text? Look with me in verse 18. It's on the back of your order of if you need it. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us that you're doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But so he was speaking about the temple of his body. And therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the Scriptures and the word that he had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in You see, it's not temple tax that gets you close to God, it's not a temple that gets you close to God. What he's saying is, if you want to be close to God, I'm the temple. They don't understand what he's talking about. They think he's talking about this gorgeous temple in Jerusalem that took seventy seven years to build, then it got torn down, and it took 46 years to rebuild. And they're like, how are you going to do that? And they miss it. He's saying, "Me. I'm the temple. And I'm going to bring people to God because of my crucifixion and my resurrection. He's saying the Pharisees don't keep you from me. The temple tax can't keep you from me. What he's saying is is that I will bring you near to you. Brian Chapel says this, half the gospel is that our sin is taken away. The other half is that we are holy before God. I want you all to rest in that, marinate it, Most of us believe that half the gospel is that God has taken our sin away and that that's the whole gospel. And now we're just trying so desperately hard not to muck up the record. The whole gospel is not just that the sin is gone, that you've got Jesus' perfect righteousness in your account. That there's nothing more to be paid. But we don't believe that. Aaron, I had a very good friends from college, and it was graduation weekend, and her parents had arrived, and her parents had arrived with a new car, a Nissan Altima. So when a couple years old, they're doing college stuff like you, that even did the thing where they put the red bow on the car, and as they're finally meeting her in the parking lot, they drive up in this car, and the red bow's on the car she's so excited and she's like jumping up and down. And her parents get out and they walk over to her, and then in their hands, they have two things. One, the keys to the car. And two, they've got the loan on the car, which has one of 59 more payments that need to be made. They have not given her a car, they have given her a burden. So that's what we think of that Jesus has made some sort of down payment for your health and your spirituality and your survival and you've got a lot more ground to cover. 59 more payments to cover. And what he's saying here is that I'm the temple. I'm the crucifixion. I'm the resurrection. All the payments have been made. It means you don't need a system of religion. You have a person to deal with. Soon It won't be the money changers and the animals that get the whip. Soon it'll be Jesus who gets the whip. And it won't be with a tree branch. It'll be with a cat of nine tails. For the people who extort the poor, for the people who distract in worship, for the people who keep others far off, Jesus will be punished for them, for you and for me. He will become sin. So that you and I will be free of sin and punishment. Pastor tells the story of First Presbyterian it's in Illinois. This is hundreds of years ago. It was just after the Civil War. Excuse me. Just after the Revolutionary War. And there's a Scottish missionary. It's downstate in Illinois. But this is before Illinois was a state. They've had three pastors in the whole of that time. And one of their Scottish traditions was that people should take communion seriously. That it should be something that you prepare your heart with, you wrestle with, you you really do business with God before you come and take communion. So they figured they would solve this problem of people taking it seriously by having a midweek service on Wednesday. And if you came to the midweek service on Wednesday, you would get a token. And that token would be what gets you communion. It became necessary to do something to be ready for worship. That they would give you a token. They would give you a token for you to participate in the unqualified grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this grace is free. You just need a token to do it. Friends, that's what the temple is doing. We know connecting with God of the universe, God of Yahweh, is free. You just need some tokens to do it. Let us not be the kind of church that says to the outside world, Grace is free, you just need such and such to get it. Jesus doesn't say, Where's your token? Jesus says, It is finished. we confess that we have been the people that have extorted the poor even if it's just because we're living selfishly with our money. We admit that we have made outsiders feel even further off rather than welcome them in. We admit that we let ourselves be distracted from the glory of God with such smaller things. But we also delight in the fact that our Savior took the whip so that we never would. We ask that you would minister to us at this table, that you would cause us to recognize the free grace of Christ, that it is finished, that you have paid all that is necessary for us to come to you. That Jesus paid it all. Would you make that real for us this morning? In Jesus' it, we pray. Amen.